Well, we've been teaching a series now, it's gone longer than I thought it would, on overcoming lived experience. We started tackling that because our culture has made an idol out of personal experience. And what we've really done is we very demonically used our past as an excuse not to change and to exempt us from biblical responsibility. And you know how it goes. Well, you know, you should forgive. Well, you don't know what was done to me. Well, you should be faithful. Well, for my culture, well, you know, you're a little rude. I'm Italian. And, the, and these are just playful examples. They're even more nefarious than that. And we see through the whole excuse of lived experience, we're seeing the exaltation of so-called my truth. And my truth is based on my lived experience, and you can't judge me unless you've walked a mile in my shoes. Well, how about you walk a mile in my shoes? How about we get shoes and we just do like a, a double-legged relay together? How about we just march together for the sake of Christ rather than using our past as an excuse to mock him and stay the same? So we've been thoroughly debunking this thing called a lived experience because if you didn't know, we all have a different life experience. And some of it's been good and some of it's been bad. And you know what's good we keep and what's bad we flush. And we have to, as Christians, be wise enough to judge everything, even mama, even grandma, even that adopted family. We have to be able to judge everything in light of God's word, even the wonderful church we were raised in and be able to look back and say, you know, now that I look back, with what I know now about the Bible, I can see they meant well, but that wasn't probably the best. No problem. I can fix it. We ought to be able to look back and not have any blind spots for our favorite cultural upbringing. Every culture has gross perversion in it, whether it's American culture, whether it's African culture, European culture, Latin culture, Asian culture. Every culture has perversion. Southern America culture, African American culture, uh, Asian American culture, Louisiana culture, hillbilly culture, city culture, political culture. It's all got perversion in it. And we have to be able to judge it without prejudice or bias and say, you know what, that's just not right. So I curse it. And that's good. So I keep it. And I don't see why this is so difficult except for personal bias and just ignorance. The more we press into Christ, the more of our favoritism is going to blow off of us. And the more we press into Christ, the less we're going to identify with certain colors and cultures, and the more we're going to identify with God's people. To borrow a transgender term, identify. But you know who my people are is the body of Christ. That's who my people are. And hopefully that's who your people are. So we've been talking about lived experience. We started off with Peter. And we showed you how Peter's lived experience made him prejudiced against the Gentiles. And that hurt his ministry for many years. And then we looked and we went to Old Testament, we looked at Moses and his lived experience was as an Egyptian and that hurt his ability to lead the Hebrews. So he had to be deconstructed and trained as in a Bedouin so he could learn how to become a Hebrew. He spent 40 years as an Egyptian, 40 years as a Midian, so he could spend the last 40 years as a Hebrew, which was his calling from day one, but it took 80 years to get there. You don't have that time. And then we came back to the New Testament and looked at Paul and his lived experience. He didn't have a prejudice against anybody. He had a strong favoritism in the wrong direction. He favored Jews above the Gentiles, but his calling was to the Gentiles. And so he didn't get that thing worked out to the end of uh, Acts 28 when he spent two years of, in prison. where he, That prison helped him learn that you don't play favorites. You go where God tells you, and you learn to love those folks first. 
And once he finally comes out of Acts 28, you begin to see him actually write his epistles. It's almost like God didn't trust him to write epistles until he got the favoritism out. His lived experience hindered his calling. And so will yours and mine. So then we went back to the Old Testament. We looked at David. Remember that? And David's lived experience was, I'm a man of war. I kill lions and bears. Philistines are nothing to me. And anybody that looks at me wrong, I'm going to kill them too. And he trained all of his men to be killers like that. And that hurt him because when he wanted to build a wonderful temple for God, the Lord said, you can't. You're a man of war and you've shed much blood. If you'll study closely the life of David in 1st, 2nd Samuel and Kings, you'll see his anointing was to kill Philistines, nobody else. He killed way more than just the Philistines. That was his calling. Then we looked at last week. Israel's lived experience was as slaves for 400 years. And they said they wanted freedom. And God gave it to them. And they said, no, 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 no. This is not what we wanted. We, 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 want, we want more of what's back there. And their lived experience hindered their own deliverance, hindered their own freedom. And it actually cost other people's deliverance too, like Rahab, which is where we concluded last week, who Rahab, she said, we're going to start there tonight, if you want to go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 2. Uh, Rahab's lived experience, of course, she's the harlot. Now, we refer to her as Rahab the harlot. Thank God that's not how she ended her life. And that ought to be an encouraging testimony right there to every one of us. If you still think of yourself how you were 10 years ago, you need to move along, sweetie, because uh, you'll be remembered for how you view yourself Thankfully, she didn't view herself as a harlot. We just call her Rahab the harlot to remind ourselves who she was. But we rejoice in who she became. And so it really doesn't matter where you come from. The good news is you can be different if you want to be. Perhaps the sad, discouraging testimony of Rahab is out of that whole city of Jerichoites, she's the only one that wanted out. Isn't that what a remnant is, though? Out of the multitude, only one really wants out. So let's look at the brief story. I'm going to look at three different people tonight. Uh, Rahab, then we're going to go to Hagar, and then if I have time, we'll finish with Mephibosheth. We're going to look at their lived experiences. Our, our quantity of Scripture for these personal stories is getting smaller and smaller, so we, have to, you know, we don't have a full hour necessarily that we can say on them without conjecting too much. So you're in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, let me get back there myself. Joshua chapter 2, verse... Six, we know Joshua sends the spies in, and Jericho is the first city to take. It's the first city on the other side of Jericho where they're going to cross, where they have crossed. So he sends two men in, and uh, verse six says, "But she, Rahab, had brought them, the spies, up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof." And the men pursued, those are the city officials who said, there came in two Hebrews. Where are they? And she said, well, they visited, but they left. The men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the Fords. I guess there was a dealership down there next to the Chevys. <laughs> and as soon as they, uh, which pursued after were gone out, they shut the gate. So they come in looking for these two spies. Verse 8, And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof, and she said unto the men, I know that the Lord, now that's capitalized, all letters, which lets us know it's Jehovah or Yahweh. She's invoking the name that God has revealed himself to the Hebrews with. How does she know him by that name? The word has gotten to her. The gospel is going out, and whosoever will is grabbing a hold of it. 
I know that the Lord, Yahweh, that's who the Lord said he was to Moses. I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us. How does she know that when Israel struggled with that for 40 years? How does this harlot get it? I kind of am convinced when folks are tired of the way they live, they'll quickly grab a hold of any hope and make it their own if it gives them a way out. The Lord's given you this land, and your terror is fallen upon us. They were bigger than they realized. Remember the other spies 40 years prior said, we were grasshoppers in our sight, and we were grasshoppers in their sight too. To which we ask, how did you know what you looked like in their sight? Did you ask them? Did you stop and say, hey there, Mr. Jerichoite, Malachite, Hittite, Midianite, how do you view me? Grasshoppers, see? We took a poll. It's probably one of those CNN polls, plus or minus air of a thousand. <laughs> Bend it the way you want to preach it. <laughs> you know, CNN, the Canaanite News Network. <laughs> Bunch of uncircumcised Philistines. Not that Fox is any better, they're just as corrupt. And that all the inhabitants of the land, they faint because of you. This was news to them. But here is a prostitute testifying of how the land views this nomadic nation just outside their door. For we have heard, now she is including we, we, we. She's including herself here. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. We've heard what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Zion, Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord, there's Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. This prostitute has more faith, more confidence, more desire to obey a God she's never worshipped than even the Hebrews. And isn't that the case? The one that God moves the mightiest for, they usually respect him the least. May that not be our testimony. May we have it all and still worship God with everything we've got. May we have it all and be excited about it. May we not be snot-nosed brats, blessed with our middle income, middle Tennessee protection, with a great governor and a great mayor and great county mayor and just freedoms like COVID never happened here, our money coming and going. We're just kind of squandering it in our comfort, not even appreciative of what we got. Meanwhile, they're locking down Canada and the democratic states are hell holes just as likely and Europe is pretty weird and whacked out. And, and here we are just I, like it's 1985, Reaganomics, let's go watch Rocky Four again. Let us not be that way. When the life we live, people dream to have. And we're belly aching about what? You took your FedEx package an extra week to get to you? <laughs> Man, we are pretty lame, aren't we? Here's a harlot. She's talking like she's one of them, but she's mindful enough to say, you, you guys, you guys, you guys. But we know where this is going. She's about to say, can I get a little bit of this? <laughs> can, I, can I get in on this? Now, therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord. How does she have a doctrine of vows? Since I have showed you the kindness, that you also will show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers 
and my sisters and all that they have. Notice she doesn't mention a husband or children. She's a prostitute. And now we can also safely conject that she's probably at least in her 40s, if not 50s, because Israel came out 40 years prior, and she says, we heard. So maybe she's a little girl, so maybe she's a mid-40s prostitute, because we know she goes on to get married and have children. So we also know these are old, old biblical times, and they're having kids much later in life. This is not too far past that era of time. So we just want you to know she's, she's aware of everything, and she's continued on in her life as a prostitute. We made the very strong point last week. She apparently had been crying out for years, I want free. If he'll deliver those slaves, he'll deliver this sex slave. If he'll deliver those Hebrew slaves, he'll deliver this little slave. If he'll do it for them, he'll do it for me. And if they destroy everybody else, they're not going to destroy me because I want some of that. Maybe for 40 years, under who knows how many men's bodies, her heart cried out, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. I want a real family. Deliver me. I don't want to be the town whore. And so somebody asked, they were texting me, Pastor, why did these two holy men of God show up at the prostitute's house? What's going on with that? which is a good question, but I got to think if she's the one that gets delivered and she's the one grafted into the bloodline of Christ, it's a divine connection. And I've got to believe her heart saying, deliver me. I believe you. That's what got those two spies to her house. Not for sex, not for perversion. They're entering into a new culture. Do they know what a Jerichoite prostitute looks like? Probably not. I don't know. But I've got to believe it's because this woman has a heart of faith. Rahab is a woman of faith. So save my family and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, our life for yours, if you utter not this our business. And it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord to the window, for her house was upon the town wall. Archaeology tells us when you lived in the wall, you were very wealthy. And she dwelt upon the wall. So here's the lived experience of Rahab. She's unmarried. She is the town harlot. And she apparently is very good at it because she lives in the wall. But she's tenderhearted. She wants compassion for her family. She cared for her family. But she's heard about the God of the Israelites, and she wants out. She recognizes that they're pagans and that these Israelites will destroy everybody in their way. But she also has to have heard about the mixed company that came out of Egypt because there's Egyptians that came out with Israel. And some of the, the uh, covenants that Israel made with the tribes in the desert land. So she knows that this is a God of mercy and she's wanting in. And honestly, what you see with her is the very first glimpse of the Gentiles being grafted in. That whosoever will can be saved. That wherever somebody fears God and they call upon him, they're going to be saved. But her lived experience is she's a whore. She's a harlot. But she wants out, and she's willing to risk her life because she could be caught for lying, and they just kill her whole family. She risks her life to get out, and God honors that faith. We might stop and say, uh, what's the biggest risk you ever took for God? What's the biggest step of faith you ever took? Have you even taken a step of faith yet? Have you, have you moved across country to be where God's called you to be? Have you backed out of a job? Have you call, called off a relationship or a friendship? 
do we even make any sacrifices for God anymore? Are we so addicted to the American Jesus, we think he's still making sacrifices? Because the American Jesus is still making sacrifices for us. The Jesus of the Bible is not making sacrifices for us. He made one. He's done. From this point on, it costs us. We don't preach the TBN Jesus around here. We preach the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible requires sacrifice. He requires obedience. He requires inconvenience. Remember, come, take up your cross, and follow me is not spelled F-U-N. It's called come, take up your cross, follow me, and deny yourself. Jesus said, if you don't reject family, you're not fit to be my disciple. So maybe there's a family member you got to say, I'm done. I remember when we first took over the church and we were sorting through a lot of commotion and the fog of a spiritual war and filth. At the end of our first year of pastoring, we, we went to go see Dr. Barclay minister in Clarksville at Pastor Luffman's church, and he's now on our board of directors. We didn't know who he was then. And Pastor called my wife and I up. We didn't have any children then, and he hadn't been around us too much, and we hadn't been around him too many times. And he called us up, and one of the things he prophesied, uh, he said, I, I see a new connection coming to your life. And I said, yeah, that's you. That's what I'm thinking in my heart. That's you. And he said, but I also see you terminating a relationship. And you say in your heart, that's it. I've done all I can do. I can't help them anymore. I have to let, let them go and walk away. And I was trying to figure out who that was because I thought I had cut everybody out of my life, but I hadn't. But in that moment, I should say later, a month later when I realized who it was, it wasn't a hard thing to do because every step of my life along the way, serving Jesus had cost me relationships. Now, the cool thing is, it always gives you new relationships. And that's what Jesus told the disciples. The disciples said, we, we've walked, we've forsaken all, we've forsaken lands and family. And the Lord says, hey, and you'll get that and new families and a thousandfold both in that, this life and that which is to come. So you've got to be willing to uh, walk away from whatever relationship God's dealing with you to. You've got to recognize when this person is drowning you. And God doesn't want them to drown, but worse than one person drowning is two people drowning. Well, who will save them? Jesus, because you can't. Well, who will God send? He has a whole bunch of folks. But obviously you aren't effective, so run away and quit letting them poison your family, your marriage, your kids, your household, your finances, your career. you got to be willing to walk away and make a sacrifice for Jesus. As I've said, if, you, if you've ne not made a sacrifice for Jesus, you're not worthy of the gospel. If this thing hasn't cost you anything yet, you're not worthy of it. So you want to make sure you evaluate yourself and see what you can do to make a sacrifice. At some point, you've made all the sacrifices there is to make. But everybody passes the test of cutting some person out of their life. Every Christian has to go through that. Every Christian I've ever known had to walk away from somebody. Sometimes the story is wonderful, and it circles back around, and they get added back to your life, and sometimes you don't get that testimony. At the end of the day, the name of the game is make heaven. Amen. And let the Lord wipe away any tears once you get there. I don't know if you're willing to do that, though. We're very Oprah-ized here in America, which is all about feelings. And we're very emotional here, and psychology for the last 60 years has lied to us and told us our feelings reign supreme, and that's not biblical. When you read the Gospels, they are rough. 
And they're all about sacrifice. And you remember all those men that helped write those epistles, they were all martyred. None of it was TB and I'm okay, you're okay, feel good, hyper grace, love, 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 the way Americans love. American love now looks like I'm a transgender, you're a transgender, let's just roll reverse and we can pretend to be a family with fake parts. That's not love, that's perversion. <laughs> At some point it would just be easy to transfer brains from bodies and not body parts. <laughs> funny. They think sexual uh, preference is concrete, but gender is fluid. That's lunacy. My parts are fluid, but my identity is not. Unless it is. And if you deny that, you hate science. Well, whatever. So she escapes, because that's what her heart been crying out to do for 40 years. How long has your heart cried out to be different? Or have you just rolled over and been content to cope? My pastor in Indy would harp on us all the time, and he'd preach with great fervency. You've not been called to cope. You're called to conquer. We're not more than copers in Christ. We're more than conquerors. Battle fatigue, though, sets in, and we just think, well, I know I'm pretty blessed. That doesn't change what God wants you to have. And if God wants you to have it, the devil's going to fight you for it. So if you're just a sissy, and you're just used to mom and dad always giving you everything, and you never actually had to believe God for anything, then you'll just roll over and cope. And it's not the will of God you cope with anything. You conquer, which means you got to go scrap. Even that half-pagan Jacob would scrap all night with that angel and say, I'm not letting you go till you change my name and bless me. <laughs> When's the last time we wrestled all night for something to change? Or are we just coping? Well, pastor will get it to me in a prayer line. No, probably won't ever happen. And we love a good prayer line. This is supposed to be a walk with you and Jesus, not you, your pastor, and Jesus like we're Catholic or something. This is between you and God. He's the intermediary. I'm not. I'm the shepherd. I pitch straw. You eat or you don't. Amen. So she cries out to God probably for 40 years. Maybe it took a little bit of time. She began to get word of uh, their doctrine and word of what was going on. And, and whereas everybody's hearts was melting about them getting closer, she's thinking, yeah, bring it because I'm getting out of here. This is my prison break. She wasn't intimidated by the wrath of Yahweh. She saw it as an opportunity to escape. She wasn't intimidated by hard preaching or the judgment of God. She saw it as an opportunity to escape. And I'm, I'm almost, my, the more I talk about it, the more I feel good about it. Her hunger to get out is what got those two spies to her house above all else. Maybe they ran into her at the well outside the city. And they began to talk to her. And she probably saw it and said, you've come, haven't you? Come into my house. She escapes. And it's interesting. I, I love the detail the Bible gives. She specifically mentions all her family, but no husband or no children because she escapes and she chooses to be a part of the body. She doesn't get delivered and then disappear into the desert to do her own thing like a lot of Christians do once they get saved. She gets delivered and she engrafts her being into the body of Israel and she marries in and she forever becomes a Jewess 
a proselyte, a convert, and we know she marries Salmon, a proper Judite. And they have a boy named Boaz. And Boaz, this is in the time of the judges. Now Joshua goes into Judges. The story of, of Ruth and Boaz is in the time of the judges. And Boaz has becomes a very wealthy man. And just one generation later, he owns lots of acreage and he's got a lot of people working for him. She marries, has Boaz. Boaz has Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse has David. Her lived experience was something to be outgrown and escaped. And she could have gone and gotten a Ph.D. in feminist studies and gone to hell. Not because of the degree, though. That's a pretty good waste of life. Or gender studies. I mean, I'll give you a Ph.D. in gender studies real quick. If you get your ankles wet when you stand to pee, you're a girl. If you can successfully stand and pee and not get your ankles wet, you're a boy. That'll be $100,000. Pay up. Oh, wait, the government will just wipe out your debt. (laughs) Yeah. She could have said, woe is me, I'm a victim. Woe is me, I'm a victim. But she said, no, I hear the train of deliverance coming. Sounds like a shafar in the desert. Sounds like a million Israelites angry. And that's my ticket out of here. And she was so excited. She's the biggest fan the Israelites ever had. She may be the whole reason Jericho was first. Because they don't rescue anybody else. She's the first one. And the only that I see in all of Joshua. Think about that. You can use your past as an excuse to stay the same and be a perpetual victim like our culture exalts right now. Or you can use your past experience to say, bless God, I am not going to be like this any longer. I don't have to be like mama raised me. I don't have to be like the hills of Tennessee raised me. I don't have to be like the inner city raised me. I don't have to be like my weird culture raised me or my uncle raised me. I don't have to be defined by my abuse. I don't have to be defined by my divorce. I don't have to be like any of that. I can be different. And so her testimony, the way she finishes up her life, the New Testament doesn't call her the harlot. It says she's one of only two women mentioned in the lineage of Christ. That's how the New Testament remembers her. She gets to have a changed life. You see no signs of her past in Boaz, in Jesse, or David. There's no signs of prostitution there. She was so excited to be different. And she didn't use it as an, I'm a victim, give me a free pass. I'm a victim, I have the moral high ground. I'm a victim, have mercy on me. I'm a victim, give me a handout. I'm a victim, wipe away my debt. None of that. That's what makes her a hero of faith. And her faith put her DNA in the lineage of Christ so that when Jesus took on him the form of a servant, his biological DNA had a Gentile harlot's DNA in it. Because that's what you can do if you'll drop your lived experience for the opportunity Jesus Christ offers you. It should encourage you that it doesn't matter where you come from. If you want it bad enough, you can pull a whole nation to your front door. (laughs) And bring your whole nation right to your front door just to deliver one woman. Smith Wigglesworth used to say, God's not moved by needs. He's moved by the cry of faith. 
And, and Smith Wigglesworth, who was a tremendous apostle of faith, would say, it seems God will move all over the world and stop for one cry of faith. Our culture, our wretched American culture, our academic culture, our social media culture teaches you to cry and bellyache and whine and sing your sad song about nobody knows the struggles you've seen, nobody knows but Jesus, but that doesn't move God. The cry of faith that says, I'm well able, deliver me. I'm well able, save me. I'm well able, come for me, Lord. If nobody else wants salvation, I'll take it. The cry of faith says, a thousand shall fall there and 10,000 there, but not right near me. That's the cry of faith. Or just be a victim. You can have what you say. You can be a victim or you can be a victor, but you can't be both. And right now it's real cool and trendy, hashtagging your victimhood, except it discuss God. Amen. How about Hagar? Let's transition. Let's go to Hagar. We could say more about uh, Rahab, but I think we caught the picture of it. If she can come out of 40 years of harlotry, you can come out of anything. So we see victory there out of a, being dealt a bad deck in life. And the existential crisis that a lot of Christians have, the, uh, they begin to deconstruct their faith when they look around humanity. They see the wickedness in life, and they think, how can there be a loving God when people are born into the sex trade or people are born into chattel slavery or people are born into a, a house where their daddy rapes them as an infant? How can there be a God? There's a God. But don't forget, fool, there's a devil too. Don't forget, fool, there's a curse. Don't forget, fool, there's demons. Don't forget, we kick God out of all of our governments. Don't forget, fool. Quit giving God the credit for bad stuff and forgetting there's a devil. Billy Graham once said the greatest trick the devil ever did was convince the world he wasn't real. So you, we see that Rahab being dealt a bad hand, her faith pulled deliverance to her when nobody else got it. That's what faith does. How did she hear the gospel? She did. And her heart said, I want some of that, and I'm going to have it. Right. Same with Hagar. Hagar. Genesis chapter 16. Let's go there. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid an Egyptian whose name was Hagar, or Hagar. And Sarah said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I, am, I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. So there's a couple of things here we need to say. Uh, th that 10 years is not quite clear. Is it 10 years after they came out of Egypt? Probably. We know that this young maiden is of childbearing age because he marries her. So this is technically his second wife, which is also a concubine, but this is still his wife. They practiced polygamy in those days. The law had not been given. And to be honest with you, even the law doesn't commit, condemn polygamy. There's not a single law in the 613 mitzvah that condemn it. There's actually laws that protect the second wives and the third wives. They're called leverate laws. Go study it out. Uh, but we know we base our doctrine on the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, and we come over the New Testament and things are recalibrated. 
But this is technically becomes Abram's second wife, his concubine. Jewish tradition, Jewish history teaches us that Hagar was picked up in Egypt as a apology from Pharaoh for taking Sarah into the Pharaoh's harem. And that Hagar was one of Pharaoh's daughters, which would seem fitting if I'm the king and I accidentally kidnapped your wife and everything begins to fall apart, how do I make amends but to repay you and show you how sorry I am by giving you one of my own daughters? Now, keep in mind, Pharaoh probably had multiple wives. He probably had a lot of children, even like King Saul had 70 sons by all concubines. And so I don't know, I don't think this is going to be Pharaoh's, if the Jews are right, I don't think this is going to be Pharaoh's firstborn daughter, but it is still a princess of Egypt. So what better way to say I'm sorry than to say, why don't you take my daughter and she can be your handmaiden? Because Abraham truthfully doesn't need slaves. He has hundreds already born into his household at this point. He does not need more property. So why do they have an Egyptian? And that would seem to fit what the Jews were teaching. Abraham already had plenty of slaves. This Egyptian was different, and we see that this one's assigned especially to Sarah. And so this is Sarah's personal handmaiden, probably because she's very intelligent, we'll conject. She's educated. She understands royalty. And don't, don't mistake, Abram was a sultan, very wealthy, very intimidable. You don't have a king get nervous about a Bedouin unless the Bedouin is very in, intimidating and influential. Remember, this, this Bedouin, Abraham and his 300 servants, took out five kings in the Battle of the Vale, Chedorlaomer, and um, when he took and conquered Sodom, the king of Sodom. So you see that this uh, handmaiden was assigned specifically to Sarah. She'd not been born into Abraham's household as all the others had. So let's conject this. Now she's a daughter of Pharaoh, which means she's used to wealth. She's royalty, if the Jewish sages are right, and we have no reason to doubt that. She's used to being cared for. She probably had her own servants before she was given away as a bondservant. And she's used to civilization. But now, she's a nomad's slave. And that nomad cares for flocks, which Egyptians hate. So think about the hand this poor kid's dealt. And you're dealing with Bronze Age, Near East, antiquity. So go ahead and flush all your gender studies and your woke ideologies because they don't fit here. <laughs> so she goes from being a princess. You know, she probably is not going to ever see it, sit on the throne, but she's still a daughter of Pharaoh. And she's used to training and having servants and having her own slaves because that's how the world worked. She's used to being waited on and taken care of, and she's probably highly educated and probably very beautiful and is used to being pampered and everything Egypt could afford her as a great civilization. And now she dwells in tents because that's what God told Abraham to do at 75. And now she helps a bunch of goat herders, which we know from Genesis that Egyptians hate shepherds. What a drastic change. So her lived experience is princess. Her current experience is slave. 
Much like Joseph would reverse the whole role later too. Abraham marries her. She conceives. And so now the story changes again because the foreign slave girl is pregnant. But you have to understand in this culture, now again, she's not really a slave anymore. She's Abraham's second wife. She's pregnant, and this was of great value in those days. Our culture makes abortion on demand cool and trendy, and girls on TikTok brag about the abortions, and celebrities brag about, and they're proud of their abortions and how many babies they've aborted, and they're not ashamed of their abortion. It freed them to pursue their career, and blah, 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 disgusting, disgusting, disgusting. But back when life was precious, this was a tremendous honor tremendous moment of pride to be able to have a conceive and have a baby. And so uh, it's great value to her culturally, no greater honor of desire than to have children. And here she is, and even above the master's first wife. I'm pregnant before her. And so it says there in verse 4, he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, so this, ladies, you know, this takes a couple weeks to know for sure, a couple months so we've got some time has gone by. We'll say maybe two months. Her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon you. Isn't that like a woman? My wrong is your fault. It's always like that, and that's not true. But that's a contentious marriage. When the woman says, My wrong is your fault. If you were better, I would be better. That's not how it works. But you see the emotions here. I mean, that needs to be, some of you women should crochet that and knit that and frame that. I don't know if that's sexist sounding, but men don't do that stuff. I grew up in the 70s and 80s and women were always knitting little things and hanging it over the toilet. <laughs> I remember my mom knit one. It's one of the things I learned to read when I was four and five. It says, I aim to please, you aim to please. <laughs> that hung over our toilet forever. But I remember a little cross-stitch thing. You know, my, it was just big in the 70s and 80s. So I don't mean to be sexist or misogynistic, but you still owe me 100 grand for your gender study degree I gave you. <laughs> my wrong be upon you. You're the one that gave her to me and said, marry her. And, and when she saw it, she had conceived. Um, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and you. But Abraham said unto Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as it pleased thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. So I don't know how hard she was dealt with, but it made this poor girl who's now two, three months pregnant flee the safety of a Bedouin camp in the middle of the Negev desert. She's got to have been treated pretty harsh, beaten, stomped, kicked. Who knows? We don't know. But anybody can take some harsh verbal abuse. This has to be physical, I assume. I think we can agree to that. That this poor girl, probably in her mid-20s, flees with certain death impending. Verse 7, The angel Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness by the fountain in the way to Shur. Shur is the wilderness between what is... Um, Gath in southern Israel and Egypt. So it infers here she's heading back to Egypt. Now that ought to ask the question to help us understand that slavery is not like we think of when we think of 1865, the Emancipation Proclamation. She could have fled at any time and gone back to Egypt. 
She just did, and they didn't seem to care. So you have to understand, we can't think of all bond servitude the same way. Furthermore, we still have slavery today. We have real slave camps today. We have real sex trade in this nation today. So slavery's never gone away. The Revelation says there'll be slaves in the fall of Babylon before Christ returns. It will never be eradicated because it's a sin in the heart of man. She starts fleeing back to the wilderness of Shur, which is on her way back into Egypt. And an angel of the Lord finds her there, and he says in verse 8, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from, and where will you go? And notice she's not shocked to talk to this angel, and the angel doesn't have to say, fear not. It's one of the few times in the Bible an angel shows up and doesn't have to say, fear not. I almost want to believe this woman knew God intimately. She talks to an angel like it's nothing, and she's not afraid. And that's a rare occurrence in the Scriptures. What I want to do in the next few minutes as we teach this, I want you to see, I honestly, my conviction, you don't have to share it, Hagar gets a bad rap because she has a son against her will in a marriage that wasn't her choosing, in a relationship that wasn't her choosing, in a bondservant situation that wasn't her choosing, and it produced Ishmael, which we all associate with Islam, which is not accurate, because Ishmael didn't create Islam. Islam came along 3,700 years later. Islam claimed Ishmael. And Hagar is considered the, 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 she created the son after the flesh, whereas Sarah is created the son after the promise. But Hagar, I believe, is a more spiritual, devout woman than Sarah ever was. The only time the Lord ever spoke to Sarah was a rebuke. And God called her a liar. How would you like to be that your record in the Bible? The only time God ever sp spoke to you was to call you a liar to your face. But here we have a Lord appearing to Hagar and say, you're a servant, you're a maiden. Where are you going, sweetie? What are you doing? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. I'm running away. She's honest. What a tremendous woman, mistreated, but honest. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply your seed exceedingly that it shall not be numbered for multitude. This is the same promise God made to Abraham. But guess whose seed she conceived? Abraham's, so the promise becomes hers as well. Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son. This is the first prophesied pregnancy in the Bible. And it's a gender reveal party. <laughs> and there's only two on the list. Because if you can stand to pee, you're a boy. Amen. If you stand and pee and your legs get wet, you are a girl. Amen. And that's just how simple this works. That's another $100,000. <laughs> but don't worry, the Democrats will pay for it with my money. <laughs> Hashtag defund the universities. You'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael which means God hears you. Ishmael gets a bad rap, but he was the first prophesied son with the first given name. God named him. God gave this kid his name. We forget that. This poor girl has had a rough experience. 
if we assume 15 years in Egypt, 10 years a slave, God is showing up talking to her, giving her the same testimony Manoah will have in the book of Judges with Samson being prophesied and his sex and his name and his assignment. And the same thing Mary will experience at the time of Christ. An angel showing up and, and Elizabeth with John the Baptist and his name being foretold and his sex being foretold. She's the first one to experience that. But she's had a rough go at it, this poor kid, the last 10 years. And yet God is honoring her because she's kept her heart right because God is interested in you keeping your heart right no matter what your circumstance and situation. If you're always a victim, God will never be able to promote you. If you're always a victim and can't forgive and always complaining, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. It's just so hard. Yeah, that's as far as you go in life and uh, that's all you'll ever know. And the horrible thing is you'll give your kids that dumb, tragic, sad song and you'll teach them to hate everybody just like your mama taught you to hate everybody. You'll call his name Ishmael because the Lord hath heard thy affliction, and he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me, Lahorai. For she said, I have also here looked after him that seeth me. She saw God. I mean, this woman sees God like Abraham sees God. And she's a little slave girl. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahorai. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. <laughs> so Hagar has this theophany. God speaks directly to her, prophesies about her lineage, foretells the sex of the child, and even names him Ishmael. God is 86 when Ishmael is born. Excuse me, Abraham is 86 when Ishmael is born. Abraham is 100 when Isaac is finally born, which means Ishmael is 14. Ishmael and Abraham are circumcised the same day, a year before Isaac is born. So Ishmael is circumcised. He's in the covenant. We forget that. We want to claim it's Islam. You guys got to know Islam is 7th century, 6th century A.D. That's at least, this is 400 years and another 1,400. This is that's 28. You're talking about 3,500 years. This is 3,500 years before Islam. We've got to stop dumping all this junk on Hagar and Ishmael. Because in my opinion, the more I study Hagar, I have more respect for her than I do Sarah. All Sarah did was receive strength to conceive seed. She never did anything after that. And we could show you from the word that after Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, it looks like she separates herself from Abraham and lives apart from him the rest of her life so that when she dies, the Bible says, and Abraham went up to mourn her because he wasn't living with her when she died. The separation took place after he sacrificed or went to sacrifice Isaac. The conjecture is, Sarah said, "What? you are a crazy old coot. I am not living with you. You are nuts. I, I'm done. And they separate. And here's this faithful handmaiden, whatever you tell me to do, Lord. So what does she do? She goes back and submits for another 14 years. You know there's tension in the tent? 14, every day you got to watch that kid grow up and it's not yours. Every day you got to watch that boy grow up, it's not yours. Every day you watch your husband, his heart knits with that son of his, and it's not yours. You know Sarah, she got a little angry. 
a little hostile. We don't hear much about her. The first time the Lord speaks to her is at the end of this 14 years, and the Lord says, you're a liar. You're mocking what I want to do. Sometime between that rebuke and the next year, she's able to conceive seed. She, by faith, receives strength, conceive seed, according to Hebrews 11. She has a son. That's the last thing you ever see her do. Assuming Isaac was weaned at three or four, Ishmael would have been about 17 or 18 when he mocks the weaned Isaac. And so, jump to uh, chapter 21. We're talking about Hagar's lived experience. Because if you don't keep your heart right, because she's totally a victim, but God's honoring her. Just like Joseph later, totally a victim. Joseph, subject of jealousy, he sold into slavery too to Ishmael's descendants, the Ishmaelites, who become a nation at that point. And they take him down to Egypt because they're wheeling and dealing and making a lot of money. This girl never sees herself as a victim. She excels wherever she goes. She obeys God wherever she goes. She never plays the victim card. She never plays the I'm oppressed card when she truly was. Genesis 21, Sarah casts Hagar out, tells Abraham, get rid of her. She, that boy will not be heir with my boy. Verse 12, Genesis 21, 12. And God said unto Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of this your bondwoman. In all that Sarah has said unto you, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall your seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman, I will make a nation because he is your seed. This is God encouraging Abraham. Who Can you, can you men imagine at the age of 18 losing your son and never seeing him again? Abraham's heart is knit with his firstborn boy. You can't, you can't disparage that. This is hard on Abraham. And the Lord's having to say, listen to your wife on this. But don't worry, I'm going to protect him and I'm going to make a great nation out of him because he's your seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And I don't know why he didn't load her down with a lot of camels and a lot of donkeys and everything. I don't know why, unless uh, Sarah's pulling the strings behind the scenes, but she kind of has that personality. Maybe he had to sneak out to even get this to his second wife and his firstborn son. What is that term? It's not modernism, but for lack of a better term, if Dr. Crystal just stepped out, she could tell me. In history, when you try to interpret historical events by modern values, it's called modernism or reduction. There's a term for it, and you can't do it. You cannot judge the motives or the intents or the actions of people from antiquity by how we see things today because it's foolish and it's, it's poor academia. It's poor, uh, poor interpretive skills. You have to judge things in light of where they were in civilization, where they were in their moral code. They had no law yet. That wasn't coming for another 400 years. You're dealing with a bunch of nomads who cut people's heads off. <laughs> It's a different world. There was no TikTok back then. Yeah, for reals. It's hard. <laughs> Couldn't hashtag your emotions and get a bunch of followers and affirm yourself. Now, if you didn't get up early, you went to bed hungry. 
He sent her and the child away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. That's the southern part of Israel again. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she sat. She cast the child, and actually the word there means young man. The King James just translates it as child, but it's 14 plus years. He's 18. He's 17 or 18 years old. The word there, I think, is yaled in the Hebrew, but it means it can be a young man, and that's obviously how old he is. So she cast the young man down, and she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, at, as it were, a bow shot, for she said, let me not see the death of the child, and she sat over against him. If you ever see somebody dehydrate to death, and I'm sure being Bedouins, they were familiar with what it might look like to watch your son have convulsions as he goes into renal failure. Let me not see the death of my son. And she lift up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not. Well, this is not because she's afraid of an angel. She's afraid of the circumstance. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So I want you to see this. She has another divine theophany. God appears to her, speaks to her, asks her questions, and encourages her. Doesn't rebuke her. Says, fear not. My promise is with the boy. I'm going to be with him. He's going to be a great nation. We've got to consider she was given away as a slave unfairly and was taken away from all she knew. She was given to an older man she did not choose, mistreated by a woman she did not choose, Honestly, Abraham and Sarah lied everywhere they went. They lied to Pharaoh. They lied to the king Abimelech. They were insecure. Abraham's getting people in trouble everywhere he goes. And these people are collateral damage. But God is faithful, both to Abraham and to this poor handmaiden. She conceives a child, a son, which was the highest value in that culture, to be able to have a son. Remember, Hannah, Samuel's mother, cried out to God, give me a son, give me a son. What greater value than to have a son in that culture? Her child is named and favored by God himself. She becomes the mother of a nation. Now consider this. None of that would have happened if she'd stayed in Egypt. She would have not been given a son God favored, God named, and God would make a nation out of. So once again, the things that were meant for evil, things that were not her control, things that were out of her reach and grasp, she just kept her heart right and obeyed the God she'd met through Abraham, and God kept turning this thing for her benefit. And in the end, she's liberated. She's pushing 40 now, if our math is right, and she gets to go back to Egypt and pick a, a wife among her people. That's what she says. It says there, she took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So she apparently went back. So she did get to go home. She returned to Egypt, picked this wife out. The Bible tells us in Genesis 17, 20, if you want to write it down, and then 20, chapter 25, that 
Ishmael goes on to have 12 sons who become 12 princes, just like Abraham, his grandson, would have 12 sons who would become 12 princes. And you see the pattern. You see the, almost like the genetic spiritual DNA split. And the promise that was meant for the seed of Abraham is given to the seed of Abraham. And two great people come out of him. And one of them befell a woman whose lived experience was being jerked out of her homeland at 15, made a slave at 16, and mistreated. And yet she comes out on top anyway because she keeps her heart right. She refused to see herself as a victim. She obeys God. She works hard. You know, all these things our modern culture makes fun of, hates and calls old school and patriarchal. <laughs> they mock it because it's biblical. I do believe if you will shut up and work hard, you'll prosper. I do believe if you'll shut up, forgive, work hard, tithe, have a budget, you will prosper. And nobody can keep you down but you. Nobody can keep you down but you and your miserable attitude. All would have been impossible with a life in Egypt, and all would have been impossible had she had a bad attitude in Abraham's camp. If she'd not been a faithful servant to Sarah, Sarah would have kicked her out of the tent and put her out in the field. But apparently she had a good attitude with Sarah, which kept her close to Sarah, which is why Sarah looked at her one day and said, Abram, why don't you take her? We can trust her. Have her as a wife. Maybe that's how God's going to do this. I'm telling you, her attitude made all the difference in the world, and she had every excuse to be miserable and angry and unforgiving and a victim. And yet, by the end of her escape, if you want to call it that, her liberation, her husband set her free, gave her a bill of divorcement. Did you know Abraham was divorced? <laughs> she gets everything a woman of her age could ever want. A son, a daughter-in-law from her own people, and a generation of princes coming out of her loins. What do you think he could do for you if you get your attitude right? Quit being such a bellyaching victim. Quit feeling so sorry for yourself. All right, Mephibosheth, last one for tonight. Can you handle one more? If you're getting nothing else out of all of this other than a nice little overview of the Old Testament, may it be that you don't let your past hold you back. God doesn't feel sorry for you in your past, and you don't get to as well. You and God is the majority. Go to 2 Samuel. You and God is the majority. You and God is the majority. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Let's look at what happens if you don't overcome your lived experience. That's the story of Mephibosheth. His name means destroying the idol, which he never did, ironically. The idol of his past. We'll, we'll, we'll bend it to teach it that way. That's not what the idol refers to. Merilabel, which is another word for his name, but Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel chapter 9. So David, we know David's best friend is Jonathan. And he makes a covenant with Jonathan that they're going to be best friends forever. Jonathan gets killed in battle. And so David now has peace on just about every side. And it's almost like he gets bored one day, or maybe he has an encounter with God and maybe writes a psalm. But he has this revelation. He says, hey, is there anybody left in the household of Saul that I might be good to for my friend Jonathan's sake? Remember that? That's here in chapter 9. In fact, that's what verse 1 says. And David said, Is there yet any that is left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said to him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Your servant is he. 
The king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan has yet a son which is lame on his feet. The king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold, your servant. Now Mephibosheth is lame because the day that his wet nurse or his, his nurse heard that Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. She feared for her life, so she scooped up the boy. He was five years old, Second Samuel, I think six, either four or six tells us. She scooped up the boy to flee away what would be, she thought, disastrous bloodshed because Jonathan and they, uh, Jonathan or Saul are dead. And she ran and she tripped and fell and dropped the boy and I guess broke his legs and they weren't able to ever set him. So the boy's been crippled his whole life. The reason David doesn't know anything about him is because he's five when Jonathan dies and David's been gone longer than that and never got to meet the kid, obviously. And apparently he's the only one Jonathan ever had or else all the other sons were killed or who knows. He's the only one spoken of in the Bible. So imagine now, here's this young man's lived experience. This is about halfway through David's reign, so the guy's about 25 years old or so, we're going to estimate. He has his own son named Michael. Micah. So he's old enough to be married and have his own kid. But ever since he's five years old, he's, he's raised without a dad. And he's raised being told, your grandfather's the worst king we ever had. And you're probably crippled because of what your grandfather did. And David is going to hunt you down and kill you because David kills everybody. This is what this kid's learned his whole life. That's his lived experience. You were heir to the throne. You should have been next in line, but your whole family is just horrible, 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 horrible. You have horrible, horrible lineage, and that's why you're crippled. You know how the, the superstition and the thoughts that comes out in the Gospels, who sinned, this guy or his parents said he's born blind. That's the mindset of the Jews and their superstition in this period. So we can assume perhaps that's his lived experience. That's why when David calls for him, he bows down and says, Behold your servant. Let's just keep reading because you can see it. We'll come back to look at verse 7. Verse 7, though, David said unto him, Fear not, Mephibosheth, because obviously he was scared. Fear not. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, though the guy never really knew his daddy. And I will restore thee all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Now this means Mephibosheth is also a Benjamite because Saul was a Benjamite, so they're coming from a different area. I'll show, uh, you'll eat bread at my table. That bread just means food continually. And he bowed himself and said, Why is your ser what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? This is this guy's self-image. Because his lived experience is an outcast, fearful of his life. Any day David's going to march in now and kill me because I'm the lineage of Saul. But we see the honesty of Mephibosheth here. Why would you even look upon me, a dead dog? I'm a servant. I'm your slave. But why are you even talking to me, a dead dog? This is maybe where some of you are at. You view yourself as a dead dog and wonder why God has any mercy on you. 
And that's all right if that's where you're at tonight, but you don't stay there. I would venture to say it was hard for Mephibosheth to hear of mercy, goodness, and kindness because he's feared for the day that he might be called before King David to have his head cut off because, remember, David kills everybody. And why would he not kill him? He's the grandson of Saul. And maybe he wasn't told about Jonathan's relationship with David, but all he knows is this is the king. He kills everybody. Nobody stands a chance, and now I've been called for him. I'm but a dead dog. I can't even walk. But go back and look at what David said. David said of him, I will surely show you kindness. I think David got this inspiration after writing a psalm because this sounds like the 23rd psalm to me. The Lord is my shepherd. He's saying, Mephibosheth, I'm going to take care of you. And this is where I want us to kind of, not contextualize, but maybe principalize this. If your past lived experience is dead dog, God still looks at you and says, I want to take care of you. The question is, can you hear it? Will your lived experience allow you to hear it? Who cares how many mistakes you've made? Who cares why you may be spiritually lame or impotent in your feet? David, a type of Christ, a type and shadow, a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, looks at us and says, I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. Well, that's like Jesus saying, I'm going to show you kindness for my father's sake. And I will restore everything that was taken from you. I'm going to show you kindness. And then I'm going to restore everything that belongs to you. I like that. That's a restoration verse. And you will eat at my table continually. I will feed you from my table continually. That's when he says, why, why you treat me like a, a, I'm a dead dog? Why are you even looking at me? Verse 9, then the king called to Ziba. That is Saul's servant. So this is one of the old wicked king's last surviving servants. And he said to him, I have given unto your master's son all that pertained to Saul and to his, all his house. Thou therefore and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. I like that. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So now... Mephibosheth has people under him. So now we've got promotion. I will give you authority, and you'll command people, and they will do things and bring you things. That sounds like the New Testament to me. I'll give you authority. Command angels, command demons, command storms. You just say the word, Mephibosheth. Ziba's going to do it for you. I, the king, have spoken it. Then Ziba said unto the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so shall we do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. To me, that's an adoption verse. That's basically my son. <laughs> I will treat you as my own son. The question is, does your lived experience allow you to hear such wonderful things? Some people can't hear it. It's too wonderful. They were told too many horrible things growing up under that wicked, abusive dad or that wicked, abusive mother or that step-parent, that foster home, foster home, foster home, foster home. But it doesn't matter how lame life has made you. Now you have the Lord Jesus Christ saying, look, I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to restore everything taken from you. I'm going to feed you at my table. I'm going to treat you as one of my own kids. 
Verse 13, so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, not even in the tribe of Benjamin. I'm going to let you live in the king's palace. You're going to be right here. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to get to dwell in the house of God forever. The, the problem is not everybody who views themselves as a dead dog will change their perspective. And I have learned I can't convince people who don't want to believe it. So you fast forward, and David falls into sin. He commits adultery. That costs him the kingdom. Absalom rises up against him. David flees for his life. And in uh, 2 Samuel 16, Ziba comes out to David with all of their property, donkeys laden down with raisins and supplies. And David says to Ziba, we're just skipping for time, so you just write it down, 2 Samuel 16. David says, where's your master, Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, he decided to stay back because he said, today they'll make me king over my grandfather's possession. David knows better than that because he knows the heart that's in this kid. By the way, at this point, Ziba's, uh, Mephibosheth has probably been sitting at the king's table five, six, seven, eight years. So David flees, David comes back, and when David comes back in 2 Kings 19, Mephibosheth meets him. And Mephibosheth hasn't changed his clothes, cleaned his beard, or washed himself since David left because he was mourning the loss of his king. And David says, why didn't you go with me? And, and Mephibosheth says, my, uh, my servant tricked me. I wanted to come with you, but he left me behind. And he's been double-crossed. He said, plus my servant has slandered me to you, king. And David says, well, fine, I've already given Ziba your property, but I'm going to make you have to, he's going to have to give half of it back to you. And Mephibosheth, though he sat for years at the king's table, he says, actually, 2 Samuel, I said king, 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 19. This shows you what happens if you don't overcome your lived experience. Actually, I'm going to read it to you out of uh, maybe a modern translation here. 2 Samuel 19. Verse 28, for all my father's household was only people worthy of death. Actually, let's back up. Verse 26, so he said, my Lord, the king, my servant Ziba betrayed me. Second Samuel 19, 26, for your servant said, I will saddle the donkey for myself so that I may ride on it and go with the king since your servant cannot walk. Furthermore, he slandered your servant to my Lord, the king, but my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was only people worthy of death to my Lord, the king. And that's not true. Jonathan wasn't. It's not true. But he still sees himself as a dead dog. After years of David being good and benevolent and generous to him, I, I want you to see, you could, it's an old, this is such a cliche, you can bring the Mephibosheth out of Lodabar, but you couldn't get Lodabar out of Mephibosheth. We can bring you out of the trailer park, but can we get the trailer park out of you? We can bring you out of the abusive relationship, but can we bring the trauma out of you? We can bring you out of the ghetto, but can we get the ghetto out of you? We can bring you out of the shameful situation, but can we get the shame out of you? Lodabar means not a pasture. And that's where he'd spent all of his formative years, in a place not being pastured, being abused, being torn by every beast that came along to have havoc upon the sheep. 
After so many years at the king's table, he's still stuck in Lodabar. He's still a dead dog in his mind. All my household is only worthy of death. Yet you placed your servant among those who ate at your own table. So what right do I still have that I should complain anymore to the king? You're his son. He said so. He's given you authority. He said so. You eat at his table. He said so. He wants to be good to you. He said so. Can you see that if you don't overcome your lived experience, the whole of the kingdom can be given to you and it'll be wasted? Well, I, no, 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 don't. Just, just say, I believe, I receive. Thank you, Jesus. That's, what, that's all you say. Before you squeeze and Lodabar comes out or you squeeze and ghetto comes out or you squeeze and trailer park comes out, you just say, yes, sir, thank you. I receive that. Yes, I just, it's in the word, I receive it. Verse 30, I'm, this is a NASB. Listen to the rebuke of David. Mephibosheth says, why should I complain to the king? So the king said to him, why are you still talking about your affairs? Why are you still hung up on this? David, who is a perpetual uh, conqueror, he doesn't get feeling sorry. He doesn't get defeat. He doesn't get dwelling in the past. He repents and moves on. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know how to run with people that lick wounds their whole life. What? He says, why are you still talking about your affairs? I spoke it six years ago. It's settled. Why are we still here? He said, I've decided you and Ziba, you divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take even all of it since my Lord the king has come safely to his own house. Come on, dude, grow up, get a backbone, be different, be a man. Oh, but you can't convince the unconvincible. So we see with these three quick examples, two of these wonderful ladies, man, they're like, you're not going to keep me down. I'm getting out of this place. I'm coming out on top. doesn't matter how you treat me. doesn't matter what's done to me. I'm getting out of this. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to obey God. And here's a guy... Everything's given to him, and he's still just licking his wound. I'm a dead dog. My whole household's worthy of death. And, and you know, um, just whatever seems good to you. And David says, why are, you still, why are we still talking about this? That should speak to you about what happens if you don't overcome your lived experience. It's totally a choice. And I would make the argument Mephibosheth had way more going for him, way more hope, way more promise. He had the law. He had the Torah. He had David. He had training. He had all this greatness. Imagine sitting at David's table. You're eating dinner with Joab. You're eating dinner with the mighty men of valor. You're eating dinner with Bathsheba. You're eating dinner with these tremendous people that's full of faith and fire and vigor. And you're just down at the other end. I just don't belong here. I just don't belong here. If David said you belong here, shut up. You belong here. Move your chair closer to Joab. Say, can you teach me how to like throw a spear or something? I can't run. I might as well be able to chuck stuff. <laughs> Get it right next to one of his mechanics. Can you guys like make you a, I'm thinking a chair with wheels. I think we'd call it a, a wheelchair. And, and maybe we could like roll it and put spikes on it. Yeah. <laughs> He's just down there. Just, can I, can I have a little bit more gruel, sir? Come on, dude. You're a king's kid now. David himself said it. He doesn't speak twice. He decrees it. And then he marches on. But it doesn't matter what table's prepared before you. If you don't want it, you'll never get it. We can't even force feed it. What 
standard, what image has been put before you, and you're just still hung up in the Lodabar dog pen, the old kennel for mutts in Lodabar, and that's how you still view yourself. It's your lived experience. I'd curse it to hell because it hasn't benefited you or anybody in your life so far. You go back there and look at what David said. I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to restore everything that was taken from you. You're going to eat at my table. You're going to be like one of my kids. You're going to live in Jerusalem, and I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to give you authority. You're going to be over people. Now act like it. I think it's a pretty good message right there if you want to receive it. If not, just keep licking your wounds like somebody from a cookful trailer park. Or you can say, bless God, this is the lowest I'm going the rest of my life. If you want it. Or just be a victim. America loves them right now. Maybe we can get you on Oprah. Oh, wait, her show went out. Couldn't ride the hype train any longer. People got tired of it. It's up to you. I would figure out what your lived experience is, where it's holding you back, declare war on it. Say, that's not me anymore. Be able to judge what was good, keep some of that, what was bad, curse that to hell, march on. And say, thank God I can be a new lump. Amen?